uh, people can hopefully one second late there's rioting so last week so apologies for last week everyone for the pre-record which ended up going rather than being 15 minutes late ended up being about 47 minutes late which um thanks youtube never mind oh, anyway uh hello hello everyone uh we have edward lee here uh which is very exciting and tonight perhaps confusingly we're going to be talking about roads <laughs> uh it's a rail matter we're going to talk about roads no we, we will mention public transport and this is a very there's a much there's an important context here um yeah edward how are you are you well i'm very well and you too yeah I, busy yeah well it's lockdown isn't it so it's we're all in a bit, of a bit of a weird mixed state that we kind of we're probably all right but actually it's horrible and we'd like to see our family and friends um yeah uh oh. there we are there's it's some, the revenge of the introverts. This is it. The introverts have absolutely won. They're thriving. Whereas anyone who's, well, yeah, anyone who's sort of anything kind of anything on the spectrum towards extroverted, this is problematic. Um, yeah, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's go side by side, Edward, so we can see your face properly. There we go. Um, yeah, so this came about, this whole, the, the suggestion for a road pricing episode actually came about from Dina who is downstairs with my father-in-law, um, who uh, suggested this while we were out in the garden because we were talking about road pricing. We were talking about the fact that current, the current pricing regime, tax revenue and, or otherwise for, for, the, for road traffic, uh, for, for any private vehicles, but also you know, HGVs, was just inadequate to manage, to manage demand in any sort of way. Uh, and it wasn't responsive and, and all these things. And, and, and I said, well, there is a thing called road pricing, but I don't, don't really know who could talk about it. And then she said, well, do a rail natural and find somewhere who can. Uh, and then here we are. Um, so yeah, that's that's good. So anyway, without further ado, before I waffle on anymore and destroy our runtime, which I have a habit of doing, um, let's let's get started. Let's do this. Let's let's run the intro. Uh, welcome to Railnatter, everyone. The lovely intercity 225 fades out and ed wonders what the hell's going on because he can't actually hear the audio from this intro video uh, i'm very pleased to say as i said edward lee here from smart uh, cambridge transport or smart transport cambridge the logo is next i should have thought of that um ed yeah i'll tell you what let's let's do the news first i've waffled a lot ed sat as ever our poor guest is sat going right i'm sure it's going to start any minute now i'll just sit here waiting uh let's do the news um firstly Firstly, I don't want to do that, I want to do this. Uh, highly professional outfit. The latest transport usage stats. Uh, yeah, the news. So firstly, I don't know if anyone's been following the trace of transport usage, um, but I've been trying my best to publish it every time the DFT does and run the traces showing cycling, uh, all road vehicles, uh, bus services excluding TFL and national rail services. And as, as it's gone on, I've started to get to know the data set a bit better. And the DFT have been adding these provisional sort of data that, that always ends up being complete rubbish. So I've started adding that in dotted lines. Um, and then I've included a projection, which is, um, I mean, it's, there's no science to it. Basically, I took the point at which policy had stabilized and then took all those numbers and then put a straight line on it to see kind of probably the earliest that, that rail usage might return to normal. And already the, the, the non-provisional data looks to be di uh, kind of diverging from that substantially. So it's, it's really something to measure progress by. 
but I mean, you can see the rise. It's it's fairly shocking that rail is still less than <clears throat> kind of still hovering around the the forty percent mark, um, or or less than that. Bus services are improving a bit better, uh, and the, probably the most depressing lines are the red and green ones. So you can see cycling is essentially returned to normal, which is what you'd expect given that road transport, the kind of road traffic, has also returned to normal. Um, yeah, so road traffic is now at one hundred and twenty percent in in some on some days of of normal which is not great uh yeah so those are the the, the transport stats so you can follow that on, Twitter, on, on that data on twitter if you're interested in talking about it more um what else do we have in the news we have ah yes a uh, rather sober subject um so my piece is up in rail magazine talking about climate change and earthworks i thought i'd put the hawking stripes up because these as i see i don't know edward you might have a different think thought on this but i, I think this is probably the neatest visualization of the trajectory of average planetary uh, temperatures that, that i've seen i mean yeah, it's a it's award-winning it is good yeah um there are other use i've seen i've seen this used in even cleverer ways but i think in terms of a simple clear demonstration uh this this is almost unbeatable um and yeah so it's in where is it in here for everyone in the corner and see yes so rail magazine if you worth picking up because i there's a lot of good information about the derailment that happened in stonehaven um a couple of weeks ago um so it's worth if you're interested if you want to understand more about what happened and why uh i'd recommend having a look at that um what else is in the news ah yes the new avanti pride train um this is exciting and in fact there's an, an even more exciting t uh, bit of news that, uh, news teasing that i'm going to do at the end of this real matter but suffice to say i think this looks awesome and um, uh, I'm very excited about it. And it's a full long train and they've done a really good job of it. And I think it's possibly the jazziest looking train on the network now. Um, all for it. It's very good stuff. And they've used the progress flag too, rather than just the standard three, uh, standard six stripe classic. Anyway, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. But that is the news. And we're here to talk about smarter Cambridge transport and road pricing. Ed, tell us about yourself. Uh, Ed, leading smarter Cambridge transport. We, let's get you, your face back up. I've talked far too much. Ed. <laughs> So, well, um, I got into transport seriously um, five years ago when I set up a group called Smarter Cambridge Transport to be a, a think tank campaign group in the Cambridge region um, because we were given, our region was given £500 million by government to invest in transport, you know, which is fantastic. Mm. Um, but then when we saw what the local authorities were coming forward with to spend that money on, um, we were, should we say, underwhelmed. And we thought we could do better. So mm. three of us got together. We started collecting ideas, um, researching, structuring them, presenting them, lobbying. And that's been almost a full-time job for the last five years. Um, but actually, at the end of 2018, I decided that I actually needed to become a bit more professional. Mm. So I took myself off to Leeds University and uh, spent a year studying a master's in transport economics which was challenging but yeah. very very um very you know, useful and, and really gave me a good uh, good understanding about cost benefit analysis the the strengths and weaknesses of it how it's misapplied how it's abused um and how it can be improved um but also just just understanding um in, in a much more sort of formal way what um you know what what transport policy is and what the, what you know how 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 it all knits together and, and to try and get some sort of feeling for how it interfaces with land use and how we analyze um, 
or, or, or the, those those interfaces because in a sense transport is the glue that that, that ties the economy together um, so I spent a year doing that um, and now I'm kind of working mostly on trying to set up a, a public engagement project um, not just around transport but really developing a local vision in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough mm. the combined authority for how we live in a sustainable way you know zero carbon in balance with nature socially just public health you know good good public health mental health and all the rest of it um, because you just you can't pick out Absolutely. housing from that you can't pick out transport from that they're all completely they're, intertwined yeah 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 and and, that, and so the conversation that, that we've got to have with the public and there's no avoiding having the conversation with the public we can't we can't just expect politicians to just come up with the answer and impose it on the rest of society or automatically come up with a, with a solution that doesn't require any behavior change no adaptation at all so we've got to bring people along with it and that means getting them to understand why it's important and what they can do about it and how they need to be asking politicians for the right thing so rather than asking politicians for bigger roads more more space to park you know cheaper cheaper driving because that's how they live their lives now and that's what you know that's that's what matters to them now we've got to make it clearer to to people that what should matter to them is you know the health of the planet and their children and their children's children and so on and that means that we actually have to live in a completely different way so it's it's uh, you know that there seems to be no avoiding having that conversation but there's no structure through which to have that conversation so i'm trying to set up a um a movement to to do that in a constructive way uh, yeah um, so yeah 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 we i mean we first our paths first crossed oh maybe they didn't first cross at that point but certainly we first met each other um when i was getting a bit annoyed at the um cambridge autonomous autonomous metro yes uh this vaporware uh, sort of gadget ban idea that's come out of the you have to be more sensible about this because you have to engage with them still but um mayor palmer had, had come up with uh without any particular what appeared to be a, a slightly strange um process in deciding it was the best option uh but anyway we won't go into we won't go into that too much but um yeah it was good we had we had some interesting conversations at that point uh yes. yeah uh, your, your input was, was was really useful, but it's uh, the, 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 the juggernaut still proceeds, and uh, um, yeah. it, it, it becomes ever more difficult to understand how it's all going to knit together. And the, the, I mean, the, the the vision seems to be to use um, a uh, what they call a trackless tram, and there's only one manufacturer in the world of that in, in China, um, to run a tram-like service across. The, the whole of South Cambridgeshire to all sorts of levels on which that's going to be very challenging and then it will have tunnels under the city Cambridge, city of Cambridge in order to get the vehicles in and through the city so yeah they're, they're just there are a number of layers of I mean there were layers that I picked out there are more layers than I picked it was just it, the whole thing isn't doolally but anyway uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's that's that so let's let's press on shall we the chat's it's all kicking off everyone's getting upset at the word gammon uh, and Karen in the chat, which is good fun. Sorry, Gammon and Karen are not pejorative terms. It's literally a humorous jab, uh, a part of. I don't know why people are getting upset about this. No, like no one's personally targeting you if, the, if Gammon is being used. It's just a humorous jab at a part of society that's always had it fine. Uh, apologies if you feel uh, that it's uh, targeting you. Uh, anyway, it's, uh, the, the, the chat has gone off on one and they're talking about Karens. Anyway, let, okay, let's leave the chat to it for a little while because that's mild chaos going on over there. Um, in the meantime, let's have a look at this. So, road pricing. Um, yeah, I mean, I talked about why I was interested in it, but um, 
yeah, I suppose the question we're going to start with is why do road pricing? Why, are, why, why do it? So um, I'll tell you what, let's have a look at the next slides that you, that you gave me. So there are two, two reasons here. Talk us through them. Okay, so there are two fundamental reasons. One is fiscal and the other is behavioural. Um, so fiscal is really about how the government is going to balance the books as we all shift, you know, we all switch our um, petrol and diesel cars and stop buying petrol and diesel um, and instead buy electricity through the national grid um, at 5% uh, VAT rather than um, the, the, the huge, um, well, yeah, about 50% of the cost of petrol is, is duty and VAT and so on. Mm. So there's going, to, there's going to be a... Um, and in fact, you, you can, you, it looks like you can just about see the, the inflection point in the revenue from uh, fuel duty. But oh, it's really? now, it, it's peaked and it's now going to start declining. Uh, interesting. That's already happened. I didn't think, I thought we were still a little bit of a way off that. But you think that's, that's already, that peak has already appeared. Well, it's, it, it, you, it's always difficult to call a peak because yeah, it could yeah. always just be a little flattening off before another rise. But um, certainly there's been a, a deceleration in the increase since the, we came out of the, the, the Great Recession. Um, so the, 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 you know, the, the government is, is going, over the next few years, is going to start to feel the pinch. And so therefore, it's going to have to come up with an alternative for raising that revenue. And it's not going to, you know, certainly if we have a Conservative government, there's going to be no way they're going to try to recoup yeah. that through income tax or um, any sort of direct tax. It's going to have to come out of some uh, form of replacement um, mm. you know, an, an equivalent tax. Um, so road pricing is, is, is really the, the only practical alternative. Um, and the behavioural one is, is we, we need to incentivise people to change their behaviour. We need to make it so that it is easier to choose active or public transport rather than driving. Um, and at the moment, as we'll discuss in a bit, um, the, the, the cost structure is such that once you've invested in a car, really that is always going to be your best mode of transport in terms of being the cheapest and most convenient um, for almost all trips up, you know, um, you know until you're to sort of travelling from London to Edinburgh. Um, so we have to change that, mm. you know, that, that, that incentive. So we, we need, we need a, a different way of charging for driving. Yeah. And, yeah, so I suppose the... Um... Yeah, there's the element of, of, so a lot of people in the chat are saying that, that they feel like the current system of, of, of gaining revenue from private drivers um, doesn't necessarily incentivize people who don't use the car very often, maybe use it, you know, a few times a year, um, doesn't incentivize people who uh, drive more responsible vehicles, for example, they, they feel like, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of feeling at the moment, and I, and I certainly share those views, I don't feel like the current system uh, really reflects, uh, you know, it doesn't doesn't reward good behaviour essentially, uh, in terms of in terms of driving it, and, and it's not so much good behaviour. It doesn't sort of incentivize incentivize uh, kind of positive behaviours with relation to emissions reduction and 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 indeed having you know smaller vehicles are also safer vehicles. Yeah, absolutely, and and I, I we'll get to some of the detail of, of why we need behaviour change uh, through looking at the at the reasons at the reasons for the fiscal change. Mm. Yeah, shall I uh, tell me? Give me a nod if you want me to move on to the next thing. So, so that's sort of that's why do it. Um, but the next, if I mash this, yeah, okay. So we're looking at. So this is talking about money then. So the, the, the kind of the the money picture, and it's. Um, 
and I suppose some of these slide, uh, some of these kind of um, graphics, it's not so much directly about money. Money is sort of maybe an allegory for other things going on as well. Um, but yeah, this is quite interesting. I, I'm glad you've gone into detail on this because it's really fascinating to unpick the numbers. So here's a nice blank white screen. So yeah, I'll bring these. I'll bring each of these blips up, and you can kind of talk about them a bit. So the first is um, well, the first is the big one, which is fuel duty. So th these are incomes from um, from motoring, from tax revenue from motoring. So the first one's fuel yeah. duty. So the, the, these are direct payments that people make to the government for, yeah. um, in this case, petrol and diesel. Yeah. And the next one is uh, the next largest is net VAT. So uh, yeah, you've got a breakdown on, on your uh, that, that you can give of this. There's a, there's obviously a bit more detail underneath that. Yeah, I mean the the, the net VAT is because businesses don't pay VAT. They they can reclaim the VAT and they you know it, it, VAT just sort of passes through businesses. Um, but the the, VA, the the VAT is on is on petrol. In fact, the, the VAT is is added on top of the fuel duty. So there's actually VAT on the duty. Um, there's also VAT on, on, on the, the underlying petrol and diesel. There's also VAT on the manufacturer um, of cars. There's a VAT on purchasing a car, mm. and there's VAT on all of the services that are associated with cars. So that nets out as about another, you know, 1.2 billion. It's quite a hefty chunk. That I mean, it's that's probably an, a, an amount of money that people don't necessarily think of immediately, but actually, it's a it's a sizable chunk, and actually, it's a larger chunk than the next um, kind of the next uh, blob, which is. Um, Vehicle excise duty. So uh, the thing that everyone calls road tax, but it is not yeah. road tax, um, which is only six point four billion a year. It's, that's pennies, really. Yes, and and it's um, it, it's it's the bit that the government tends to play around with. So o over the last you know, decade or so, they've uh, experimented with um, you know having zero rating on very low emissions vehicles as a, as a way of incentivising people to buy um, low emission vehicles. Um, and then, and, you know, and slightly staggering it so that it's more expensive for more polluting vehicles and heavier vehicles. But it's, it's, um, you know, you're right. It's, it's what even the government sometimes refer in some context refers to it as road tax. Yeah. It, it is, it's, it is the bit that people are most conscious of because it's, you know, you pay it specifically to do with your vehicle. Whereas when you're buying fuel, you're not, you don't see the duty. You don't see the yeah, duty. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of feels with, with fuel. It feels like, well, I'm burning that fuel, so that's my cost. Whereas the mm. the VD feels like, oh, I'm giving that. That's the thing I'm giving. Yeah, away. you're not getting anything in return. For yeah, that. yeah. Which actually plays into slides we've got later on, actually about um, fixed and marginal costs. But we'll we'll wait for that. Okay, so that's the that's the, those numbers there. And in fact, there's one tiny little last <laughs> little last blip down here. These little circles are to scale because I have, um, uh, you know, I'm on various spectrums. So the yeah, this one, this tiny little one here, 0.2 billion, which is the HGV road user levy. Which I didn't know about, but I didn't realise it was that small, considering how large an industry, uh, road haulage industry is. Indeed, and, it, and it's, it was added really to try and make uh, overseas HGV vehicles pay pay their way. If you like, I mean, you know, HGVs cause an enormous amount of damage to the road. Um, you know, the, the, I think it's the is it the fourth power? Fourth power rule. Um, so one HGV yeah. does the damage to the road of about two thousand kind of middle-sized cars. That's about yeah. the, it's just, that's, that's a huge, I mean, yeah, huge amount of damage, which reflects yeah. in, in money that then has to be spent maintaining roads. Exactly, exactly. So, they, they, and, and because HDVs registered abroad, can, they, they, can, they can, and they, they frequently do, they will fuel where it's cheaper in the continent, and then they will drive through the UK. So, they're, they're not necessarily contributing their fair share of mm. tax revenue. So, hence why this, the road user level was set up. 
but it's it's a pretty small contribution to the to the to the taxpayers um, to the treasury. So, um, and it, and actually, the, I haven't seen a recent report of how much it is bringing in. They only reported how much it brought in in the first year, oh, really? and then it doesn't doesn't appear to be stated in any of the the the, 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 the accounts that are broken out into specific yeah, sources. Yeah, yeah, oh dear. Um, we've got a few people who just tried to rub that little dot of mine off the screen. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a tiny little speck, isn't it? It really is an insignificant speck. Um, so that's, I think that, oh yeah, and it's it's worth noting, and you highlighted this in the in information you sent, that that's about 7% of the total annual tax receipts. So it's in that kind of order of magnitude, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's quite interesting. So that's the amount that, that government takes in from um, motor traffic on our roads, right? Um, but then how much goes out? It's quite, quite a reasonable question um, because that really plays into how important it is for roads to fund themselves possibly. Well, let's have a think about that. So nice blank screen again. So I'll go through these again. Uh, so the first is, these are in no particular order, I must add. Uh, the national roads expenditure. So that's, I presume that's building, maintaining uh, anything that goes into, does that include capital projects? Uh, yeah, so th th this is capital and revenue. So it's the okay, yeah. building of new roads and uh, the maintenance of them and, and the lighting and all the rest of it. Ah, the, okay, yeah. And it, it actually varies quite a lot from year to year. So, mm. so um, as, as the you remember, um, Rishi Sunak announced that there was going to be 22.3 or 7 billion pounds worth on, uh, spent on tarmac over the next five <sighs> years. So um, that, that, that means that actually the expenditure is going to go up quite significantly over the next five years. If that's assuming that uh, the Transport Action Network's judicial review um, doesn't succeed. But oh, if that's fingers succeeded, crossed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, then, uh, yes, we might see that money very hopefully being reallocated to where it's really needed. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, and then in local road expenditure is the same thing. So I suppose that's the primary route network and motorways versus everything else, essentially. Um, yeah, pretty yeah, much, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's 5.3 billion. So medical and ambulance, uh, 1.8 billion a year. Um, yeah, so how, what, what, what exactly is covered by that heading then? So that, that is just the direct cost of treating um, people who are injured um, in collisions on the road network. Mm. So anyway, yeah, whether, whether pedestrian or a car driver, um, that's, that's the estimated direct cost. Yeah, and then policing is another tiny dot, 0.2 billion a year. Um, so I suppose that's specific dedicated pots of money towards highway police and uh, and similar. Yeah, that's right, road, yeah. road, road policing, yeah. Yeah, and then we've got, um, so we've got this interesting one, lost output, 4.6 billion. That's an interesting one to break down a little bit, perhaps. Yeah, so that's, you know, if, if you're injured and you have to take time off work or you're in hospital and you're not able to work, um, what, what's your loss, you know, what's, what's the loss of your contribution to the economy while you're being paid sick leave? Yeah, and then... Um, a large, there's, we're getting a bit larger, 6.1 billion, which is insurance and damage to property. So insurance, yeah, um, I suppose that kind of says what it does on the tin, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, and that's, that's, that's damage to the vehicles and damage caused by the vehicles. Yeah. And then we've got this huge, huge lump, um, which is human costs, 22.8 billion a year. Uh, and this covers a few bits and pieces, but actually it's, this is broadly... Um, to do with fatalities and injuries, right? This is, um, yeah. It is, yeah. And, and there are sort of standardised values of life that we use in this country, but they are, they're derived 
in a reasonably systematic way from uh, surveying people what value they attach to having a limb rather than not having a limb mm. or having um, a relative alive rather than not having them alive. So it's, it's, it's a subjective cost, but it's, uh, um, it, it's, it's standardized and, and reasonably robust. Um, and it, it varies somewhat between country to country. And certainly a developing country will have, tend to have very different values of life yes. to a developed country. But certainly amongst the developed countries, um, the, the figures tend to be similar. You know, they, it, it's, it's in the order of one to two million pounds yeah, per so, life. So it's an interesting one. So, so we were chatting a little bit about this before we went live. And um, so I use these values a lot in engineering, actually, because when I, I use them as part of risk assessments. So, so yeah. the, the common safety method on the railways, um, when we're doing what's called an explicit CSM risk assessment, we have to use these values. And I, I, I thought they'd come straight from insurance companies, but actually it sounds like there's not an unreasonable, well, as you say, it's actually quite a good methodology behind it to generate them. So yeah, it's 1.898 million uh, per, for, for life. And then the breakdown, certainly on the railways, that's a fatality. And then a tenth of that is associated with a serious injury. And then it kind of breaks down in, 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 that, in that way. And it includes you know, uh, mental health as well, sort of long-term yeah. psychological impacts within that so yeah so we use those so so essentially that number that 22.8 billion is derived from looking at fatalities serious injuries uh long-term minor injury you know it, that breakdown and then associating yeah. a cost with each of those to give this number um yeah. which is actually quite a good way to tally um to tally to, to record that and, and make comparisons across different modes um as yeah. you'd imagine the all, sorry go on well, I say, although it's not a cost that involves transfer of money, it is something that people value, even if people wouldn't automatically try to attach a, a, a monetary value to somebody's life or their own well-being. There is a real value to it. And so you know, and this is one of the big challenges in economics generally is how do you quantify things which you don't mm. pay money for? Absolutely. But nevertheless, you know, it, it is a very real cost. And, and you know, when people sort of say that so, well, well, speeding is a victimless crime, well, it is until you hit somebody Absolutely. and you hurt, you injure them or you kill them. And then there's a huge cost um, yeah. to the family that's, that's involved. And, and that's it's it's hard for people to, to keep that in mind when mm. they're thinking about the cost of roads. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And at some point I might do a discussion about that. I might have a chat about that topic in and of itself. Cause it's quite interesting to see how engineers use those values to to um, prioritize different uh different engineering proposals actually so there's maybe an interesting discussion to have there at some point but anyway back to this presentation uh yeah so that those numbers so let's look at how those two compare to each other i think um because there are some other externalities that we're going to touch on but first those are the things that we can fairly easily you know relatively easily quantify so we have the total for motoring income so that's the amount coming into government's coffers 43.8 billion the amount of outgoings that, that we've looked at so far is 45.7 billion so already i think anyone who's reasonable at maths uh, and adding can see that um government's losing two billion a year ish already uh and that's before you start considering um so these some of these uh, externalities well, just, just, just so, to be clear on it it's not government losing it it's sorry, society, yeah, it's society losing is losing it yeah you're right yeah. sorry yeah, society is already at a loss um but that's ex that's excluding externalities like you know the health costs of pollution health costs of physical inactivity, you know, the environmental costs of GHG emissions um, and the ecological costs of, of the existence of roads, expansion of roads, 
of traffic and pollution. You know, I suppose within health costs, you've got things like stress and anxiety as well. Noise is something that actually is really not good for people's mental health in busy street uh, cities. You know, impacting on sleep. You know, all these things. I think you had some numbers for for the, the or some broad numbers for the GHG emissions one. I think didn't you? Um, yeah. So it's it's. it's very difficult. It's 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 very hot research. What the cost of carbon? What the carbon cost should be? So at the moment we have um, we have a European carbon trading scheme, and that attaches a price of about thirty pounds a ton. Mm. And the Euro and the UK has a carbon floor, which I originally used to think was a floor. In other words, it was a, a number that it wouldn't go below. Actually, it's a supplement. So actually, in the UK, it's about another 30, roughly 30 ah, pounds okay. a ton. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, in the UK, we pay considerably more per ton for those emissions which are traded. So electricity generation does involve purchase of carbon credits. And um, that's actually one of the reasons, probably one of the main reasons, in fact, why the UK has managed to almost squeeze coal out of the grid because of that car- that additional carbon cost but it's had all sorts of because we're connected to the rest of europe we've got interconnectors to the netherlands and to, to france it's actually had some interesting effects on prices of electricity in the rest of the continent because um we, we import and export depending on price differentials between the two um so but um so uh, at, at the lower end if you take um, just you know, if you just took fifty pounds a ton, which is kind of what 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 the the, the price is roughly at the moment, um, and the total um, carbon emissions from transport or greenhouse gas emissions, so mm. carbon carbon equivalent, um, is one hundred and eighteen megatons at the moment per year. So that would equivalent so that would be equivalent to five point nine billion pounds. But there's there's very good research to look at what price you need in order to get the changes in energy generation that are necessary, for instance, to make BEC, um, uh, bio, um, biofuels and carbon, uh, carbon capture. And to make that viable, you need a price of about 240 US dollars a ton, so that's 182 pounds a ton. So that would be a price of 21 and a half billion pounds just for carbon just for carbon um, it, emissions, yeah. yeah. Just for the UK carbon emissions of transport. Yeah, good. And, and actually, the interesting thing in, in pollution, something that we're only really just beginning to to get a grip grip on because it's only it's very new research, is the the microplastics of tire wear. Mm. So you when you when you when you get your tires replaced, I mean, it's because they've gone bald. Well, where's all that rubber well, plastic? In fact, where's it gone? Well, actually, what's happened is it's it's got ground up into tiny tiny microparticles and it's basically got flushed down the drains and most of it's ended up going out into the riverways and into the sea so a large contribution to microplastics in the environment are from vehicle tires vehicle tires yeah yeah, yeah. yeah if, you, if anyone watches formula one i'm sure you've all seen the little rubber all the mess of rubber that collects on the side of the track well <laughs> that's that's intense because they're soft rubber uh, tires designed to do that but they're only 20 cars so just imagine our main roads and the bits are a bit smaller, but just all that rubber, you know, think how quickly it takes you to go through the rubber on your tires, and there are millions of vehicles on the road. It's a hell of a lot of rubber just being shed into the, not to mention all the other kind of uh, nasties that are getting washed off cars, you know, rust and goodness knows all, you know, heavy metals and all sorts. Um, yeah, because it's not just rubber in tires as well. There are, there are other nasties in amongst it that, that get washed out. Yeah, so those externalities aren't included in that previous sort of... Um, 
some. So you can see that actually once you start looking at the cost, you know, so that's that's what we could easily quantify. Once you start looking at these costs as well, um, the cost to society of driving is of of road traffic generally is enormous, absolutely enormous, um, and unaccounted for. Yeah. So okay, so then kind of moving parallel to that, we've got this this idea of sunk versus marginal costs. Now, tell, before we go into these slides, tell us a bit about what why why this is important for this discussion about road pricing. So this this is the the other reason why we need road pricing. It's about the behaviour change. And um, when you're making a, an economic decision, and lots of decisions are in fact economic, um, there's a concept of sunk costs and marginal costs. And sunk costs are things that you, you've you've already committed to. You know that so you, you you've, bought, you've bought your car. Um, it's now sitting on the road. It's you know it, whether you use it or not. That's a cost you've incurred. Yeah. And similarly, the annual insurance on the car, that's a cost you've incurred, whether or not you, you drive. It's a legal requirement. Uh, and then there's the marginal cost, which are the cost you incur to actually use the car. So they're, they're kind of the per mile, per kilometre yeah, yeah. cost. And we're very sensitive to marginal costs and relatively insensitive yeah. to sunk costs. <laughs> You know, we just kind of think, oh, you know, you know, the sunk cost is just something you're obliged to do. You, you, you don't, you, you, people, people spend much, much less, um, you know, effort on trying to reduce their sunk costs uh, relative to the to marginal costs. And, and and one of the things that that uh, um, you'll have noticed in the last you know decade or two, there's been a very big shift towards subscription pricing of things like mobile phones and. Um, Sky subscriptions and all those things, because it's a sort of you, you kind of make the commitment once. Mm. You don't have to. You're not. You don't pay as you go. So you're not thinking every time you watch a movie or every time you watch a football match that's going to cost me. Do I really want to spend that money today to spend to do that? You know, you, you pay it all up front, and then it's kind of all you all you can eat from that. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same with credit. It's why credit cards were kind of a a big deal when they first came out because it, it helped shift. It helped detach us, and it made it turned our regular expenditure into looking a bit more like uh yeah it was a, an easy way to play with the psychology of expenditure which is something that um these subscription models play on so let's have it yeah, yeah so 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 you gave me some numbers which well not numbers actually just a bit of a, a good breakdown which i think is quite useful for for people and i'm sure everyone on the feed everyone watching this I'm sure these kind of make sense but it's it's i think it's interesting seeing them broken down so for driving um you've got your sunk costs so like what vehicle purchase maintenance insurance as you said vehicle excise duty um, and then parking actually if you've got to pay for storing your car when you're not using it uh, at home and then on top of that you've then got the marginal costs of fuel you know tolls uh, and then parking wherever you're going i think it's quite nice to see those broken down so it's yeah it's easy to forget and a lot of the discussions we ha have on are people who moan about train tickets okay train tickets are too expensive in the uk anyway but that's we all know that but you can't compare hopping on a train um, with the cost of just fuel because it's that's not really a sensible way of looking at of, of comparing the benefits of public transport which and we'll come back to this slide in a minute but if you look at public transport it's just marginal costs you know it's just the cost of your fare uh, you know any any kind of last mile connections and, and then you know parking fees perhaps at the station so yeah I don't know if you wanted to say anything anything about this kind of breakdown um, Ed. well it's you know when you um, you know, you, you, people, people moan about how expensive it is to to travel by by train, or even even to travel by bus. And, and, and you know, bus really isn't all that expensive. Um, 
the comparison is with the marginal cost of driving. You know, people have you kind of just sort of forgotten all of the, the the upfront costs that they've incurred in order to have the car and be able to drive it on the road, and they're just looking at well, you know, it costs me you know so much in fuel to drive um, there, and you know, and, and the cost of the, for the car park, but then they're comparing that with the fare to travel on the train or the bus, which is covering you know the fuel, the labour, the infrastructure support, it, the maintenance, the you know the cleaning, the security, you know. Everything yeah. is, you know, it's all lumped in. You know, that you're paying for all of that in the in the fare on a sort of pay as you go basis, mm. and and so that they're not, we're not comparing like with like, but that's the kind of you know once you've made the commitment to buy a car, you you know it, it actually is perfectly rational to compare mm. your your marginal cost of driving with the full cost of using public transport. So and and this leads you to one conclusion, which is. We have to make car dependency, um, you know, we have to reduce car dependency. We have to make it as po- possible for as many people as possible not to have a car. Because yeah. if you don't have a car, then actually you can make much more sensible decisions about when you use a car. Because you, you, know, you can use a zip car or a tire car when you really, really need a car. Um, but then you pay for it because that's what you need rather than taking the bus or going by train or getting on your bicycle. Absolutely, so yeah. You know, so so we, we kind of need to, you know, we, we, we've got to try and remove the need to have a car in the first place. But where you have to have a car, what we've one of the things that we want to do, and this is why we're talking about road pricing, is we need to shift some of these sunk costs into marginal costs. So actually they become part of what we um, use when we're, when we're making that decision, whether to use the public transport or mm-hmm. use the car. So it's that, yeah, very much that behaviour element is the yeah moving so things like your your, your vehicle exercise duty that you've got there and the sunk costs, and shifting it over into the the market. Yeah, okay. So that, yeah, I can see how it just helps support the idea that actually you're thinking about more when whenever you are about to get pick up the keys from the kind of your, your cupboard or whatever it is. Think actually, do I need to make this journey? And and then more crucially, which is sort of the utopia that we all imagine, which is actually that. The majority of us don't own a car, and we use hire cars and 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 sort of um, you know top up cars or city car or whatever it happens to be more frequently. I never understood yeah. why hire cars haven't kicked off in a bigger way more recently, to be honest, because they're phenomenally useful. And actually, you can hire a car pretty much every weekend, and it's still cheaper than buying a car and and maintaining and insuring a car of, of your own. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the bit that, that the industry hasn't really cracked is the one way rental. So if you're yeah. Going to you know spend a long weekend with your with your family, you're you're paying for a rental car to sit on their driveway for you know two three days. That's you know that that doesn't really make much sense, and it also means that the car's not being it's not available to be used by other people. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just, it's not efficient. So if if, if we if, in a sense what we really need is just a, a national hire car network. So there's one company and, and or, or franchises of one company, and it basically you know you you can drive anywhere drop the car off and then pick up another car when you need it. Yeah. You know, it's, the, you know, it's the model we need. Oh, there we go. Nationalised hurts everyone. You heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, no, since I... it's bankrupt, it's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a moot point. Yeah, that's very true. Um, yeah, I'll be all for that. And, and yeah, so you look at the marginal cost of public transport. And yeah, as you say, there's not really a huge amount. I don't know if you've got anything else to add on that, really. But it's it's people seem to have these quite vividly in their mind, you know, taxi fares and station parking fees and, and of course, the actual fare of the core public transport as well. Yeah. I mean, there is one thing that's worth saying, which is that the media 
um, which is mostly you know, most people who write in the media are car owners who are fairly anti-public transport. They always pick the most expensive single yeah. fare as the comparator. <laughs> um, and you know the reality is that anyone who does use public transport very, very rarely has to pay um, you know, the, 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 the roll up, rock up on the day peak fare. Um, but actually in the UK, because of the way that, uh, because it's privatised, we've incentivised companies to basically price price gouge. You know, in other words, you sell the ticket for the highest price that someone's prepared to pay for yeah. it. Um, so, you, you, but that, but, but the corollary of that is it means that we, they're also able to sell tickets at ridiculously cheap prices. So you can get tickets which are ludicrously cheap you know, to go from London to Absolutely, Edinburgh yeah, yeah, yeah. if you if you put them you know, you know on the you know, within an hour of the yeah, at least. Released, yeah, yeah. It's, um, a, it's a it's but, a it's a core point that sorry I've interrupted you there, but it's a, yeah it's one thing that, that Britain's railways have we have the the the, 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 the cheapest and the most expensive fares in Europe because I, right. I think um, Mark off of seat sixty one man in seat sixty one highlights that um, Britain has has the most commercially competitive rail fare system now for better or worse you know I, i'm not necessarily advocating for that you know that can exclude a lot of people and i'd prefer that the the average price was lower but um that's a, you know the reason that functions is because we have a saturated network it's a very full railway network and so we have the ability demand is sufficiently high okay post covid uh, you know when things steady out again demand is sufficiently high that fares essentially can be as high as they want to be because the seats are always full um, yeah, that's right. We, we use we actually use pricing to ration mm. the use of trains, which is you know which seems perverse. It does, yeah. Of, but it's because, as you say, the, the network is at capacity at peak times on yeah. on on key routes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, what does road pricing actually look like? That's the that's that's the next question. So, so as we talked about sunk versus marginal costs, we've talked about the so we've we've addressed perhaps the fiscal and the behavioural reasons for it but this is kind of covering um what it looks like very briefly i'm going to just say i'm drinking brew dog hazy jane by the way i don't know if anyone else is uh, enjoying a nice beer this evening but um uh, yeah are you drinking anything nice ed got anything pleasant um, it is it's non-alcoholic but it's uh, it's very nice then oh lovely um <laughs> uh yeah so anyway right what does road pricing look like so we've got three three widget images here uh everyone knows me i like to make graphics marginally uh, excessively flashy uh, to the point of comical so um so there are three things here so i'll bring them up um one by one and you can maybe talk us through each one in, in turn so first of all tolls um so i mean everyone is familiar with um tolls in uh you know lots of the, the big bridges and tunnels in this country were built on the basis that they would be paid for through tolls and the M6 toll was uh, was our sort of one and only experiment in in, uh, in, in charging for a, a, a normal road in that way. Interestingly, the A14 um, upgrade between roughly Cambridge and Huntingdon, um, when that was first proposed, that was going to be a toll road with a local access road running running parallel to it. Mm. Um, but that that was rejected out of hand, largely because unlike the M6 toll, where you have got a motorway alternative. It's it's kind of uh, you're, you're paying a premium for a, a shortcut um, on on a on a on a motorway when you could just stay on the existing motorway. Yeah. Uh, the A14 there wouldn't have been that. You know, it would have been a, a a local, probably very congested, single carriageway local road alternative. So that, that it's never really taken off in this country. But 
um, France, America, um, you know, it, it's perfectly normal to pay um, to, you know, to pass through a toll at various points along, you know, when you, when you join the motorway at various points along it. Um, so that's, that's um, commonplace. It's less common um, um, in cities, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about tolls in cities. Uh, yeah, so, so that's tolls. Uh, the next one is, um, I believe it's cordons. Yes, cordons, which I've not heard this word as the, as the umbrella term, actually, for, for kind of, well, congestion charging systems, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a, sort of exclusively um, cities that would use a cordon charge. And, and London is, is one of, um, you know, it's, it's the one we know best, but it's not actually the most common type of um, charge. But the, essentially, the, the cordon means that you pay the charge to drive within an area bounded by you know, a border. Um, so when, when you cross the border into the city, you then are you know, you're then required to pay pay the fare. Now, you, you might think, oh, well, if you just drive within the city, then you wouldn't have to pay it. But actually, there are, although the cameras are all mounted on the points where you cross the border, the boundary, um, there are also mobile um cameras to to pick up the local traffic that's not crossing the, the cords or, or that might have been missed by the cameras coming in mm. uh, yeah uh, so one of the things i've talked about a fair amount is that i believe that and, and maybe this maybe our discussion might change my mind on this for me i see ultra low emission zones as being a really important rapid fire step for us to quickly start reducing traffic within cities um even within you know larger towns and built-up areas um so I always felt like that's a, it's a, a quick way for us to, to start modifying behaviour within urban areas. But um, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, fortunately, it hasn't proved to be quick. So yeah. uh, the, the introduction of, of uh, ultra low emission zones, other, other than in London, um, where the governance is, is is there to to make it happen reasonably quickly, other cities have been sitting on it. I mean, Leeds has been playing around with you know with, with intending to introduce it. Manchester, Birmingham. Um, and then COVID came along and basically all those plans were put on hold. Yeah. Um, and and the, the thing is that actually the incentive to switch commercial vehicles to electric is, 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 is now very high because electricity is cheap. Um, and although petrol is you know, and diesel are, are somewhat cheaper now because of low, lower demand, once they go back up to pre-COVID prices, um, most you know most commercial companies will be looking to replace their vehicles with ultra low emission vehicles anyway as part of their just you know um, replacement cycle so actually the by the time the these ultra low emission vehicle um, the zones to sort of kick in when when once they bite the the proportion of traffic that's going to be caught by them is not going to be that great so they're not going to be big revenue um, raises and they're, mm. and they're probably not going to do i mean had we introduced them five years ago, they would have been brilliant. But I mean, the reality is, is if we're introducing them only over the next five years, their impact is going to be relatively small. Yes. And, 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 and actually, the, you know, one of the things that we haven't really managed to thrash out is, do we make bus companies pay as well? You know, they're providing a public mm. transport service, but they use buses that you know, emit, emit diesels. Now, actually, Euro 6 buses are remarkably low emission vehicles you know a, a euro six bus emits less in absolute terms than a euro six car 
and, and there are different standards the, ah, for cars. Okay. And, and, yeah. But actually, they, they, they are. It is so good. Uh, uh, the the, the um, system that's in, installed in a bus that actually the, the emissions are you know really are lower than a car. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's well. That's very interesting. That's that's usefully insightful. Um, yeah, I suppose it's interesting thinking about the incentive for electric vans. So, for me, I mean, we had a chat with Nicole Badstuber about inner city logistics. Actually, and I think that's going to be a really good future rail matter. Actually, um, but I have I've been pleased to see some companies starting to take up to pick up the baton. Okay, it's obviously slower than any of us would like, but uh, in York, DPD, fair play to them, have a fleet of electric vans. Now, they're decent sized vans. You know, it's like a, a kind of a decent. It's not quite transit, but it's a bit small than that. But that's a, for me, that's exactly what I'd be hoping to see: is those sorts of vans doing the logistics within built-up areas, because they're you know they're 100%. Um, you know, batteries aren't perfect, but it's certainly cleaner um, than the than than what's there before. Um, anyway, right, okay. So and the next, so this is the last um, bubble here is um, is distance-based, and this this is kind of the future of the, the, the holy grail, you know, because mm. until you've got distance-based. Um, you, you're not. You haven't really got road pricing. You know, if if, if, we're, if all we're going to be doing is setting up toll booths or gantries at various points, not only is that hugely expensive, but it also greatly limits where where you can you can realistically do it. Um, but if you can do a distance-based thing where you're effectively GPS tracking vehicles, and then you can charge um, by the time of day, by the road that they're that's, that they're using, what what type of vehicle it is then you've got the ability to have a, a truly discriminatory uh, road pricing system. And that there's one country which we'll come to, um, which is introducing this. And they, they, they will be the pioneer from which we will all learn. Yep, absolutely. Right, so let's have a look. Let's kind of break some of these down. So I think, yeah, so you've got some examples, I think, here. So um... Yeah, so little known, but there mm. is a, there is there is a, a congestion. Well, it's actually not congestion charges; it's, it's just a, a, a charging zone um, in Durham. You know, mm. it's, it's the only one outside of London, um, and it was introduced simply to reduce traffic, trying to access the very you know the city centre. Um, so, if you want to drive right into the middle of the centre, you have to pay a two pound um, charge to that, and that's obviously on top of any parking fees you'd have to pay. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is a no-brainer. It's interesting, actually. I forgot to mention earlier. You were talking about how tough it is politically to introduce congestion charges. I remember when Edinburgh did a referendum on yeah. in, introducing one because I was in. I was either in Edinburgh at the time or was soon to become a, a move back to Edinburgh for, to become a student. And I remember. And it's like, why has everyone decided that? But the reality is that it's not. It's a it's a difficult sell, and it's better to build consensus. As a, and then, yeah, a referendum certainly isn't the way to go, to be honest. But it, it is—it just shows how difficult a sell it is um, if it's not if it's not sold to the public in the right way, if it's not explained and it's not part of a wider, a bigger picture and explaining what the benefits are. Um, well, it, it's, it's that, and it's also that you kind of need to give people. Um, you know, we, I mean, people tend to call it back to carrots and sticks. I hate that term. I tend to talk about options and incentives. Mm. But if you're if you're going to create a negative incentive by by charging people more to drive, then what are the options you're going to give them in, instead? And most cities, the options are inadequate. You know, the, the buses don't run where where people need them to go at the hours they need, the frequency, and so on. So people want to believe. Well, well not, they don't want to believe. They want to see. The public transport alternatives, you know, the the, the, the 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 cycling infrastructure that's there, ready for them to use when the congestion charge comes in. But the reality is that we, you know, we're 
we don't have the space and the, the money to sort of do that. We kind of the local authorities need the revenue from congestion charging in order to invest in buses, and they don't have the money to sort of do it up front. If you like, mm. so it has been a big problem. The one city that did it, it did have a referendum, and they managed to get it passed. It was Stockholm, and ah. that was because they did a trial. So they did the congestion charge as a one-year trial, and they and, it, and there was and it, people were deeply opposed to it before it came in, but because it was a trial, it was you know. It, it seems it, like it, okay, well, fine, yeah. And then the trial went in, and people thought, oh, actually, you know, I, I, I can adapt to this. I, you know, and by the time it came to the end of the trial, and and the, when the when the trial ended, they did stop it. It wasn't they didn't mm. play around with it. It wasn't, didn't sort of pretend to do a trial. They did actually do a trial. They did a referendum. And it passed, but there they were. The referendum. The other issue is: is who do you count in the referendum? Yes. If you just take a referendum, people live in the city boundary, then they're the ones who see the benefits. You know, they see the less the less traffic, they get the better public transport, the you know, quieter streets, and all the rest of it. What about the people who live in the suburbs and the people who live in the villages outside? Are they going to be as supportive? And that's 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 again one of the problems. Yeah, of, yeah. Of getting consensus. So, um, Andrew S in the chat. That's the first time we've got a, a, some interesting queries. Keep do send your <laughs> questions, everyone. Um, there's there's all sorts of good natter going on, but it's it's fairly sideways. Um, Andrew asks if there's data on this Durham one and whether it worked. Do you have any any idea of, of what the effectiveness of this scheme has been? Um, I don't know that there's been a formal study of it, but it's effective in the sense that, um, as far as I know, they don't have a problem with congestion. Uh, or too too many people trying to get in drive into the city centre. Mm. Otherwise, it's it, it, it's kind of self-regulating. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of an equilibrium point. So yes, I think it does work, but it's a very very small scheme. I mean, yes. you're, it's, it's almost just a, like a cul-de-sac. That's mm. that. It's, it, it's almost like a a parking fee, really. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's, it's so it, it's. Uh, it's, it's not really a congestion charge. But, but it, uh, yeah, but I would, yeah. I suppose this comes to what we're about to talk about. But I suppose in my mind, I was imagining systems like this, these little charging zones popping up in all sorts of towns around as an incentive. Well, if nothing else, to reduce HGVs accessing these areas. Um, uh, but um, yeah, OK, so, that's, so the next slide. So that, that's the Durham charging zone, which is. Um, I think, I think it's two. I don't know if, if it's still two pounds, but it's it's two pounds to go. You know, it's, and that's, that's the, what you pay to. I think that gives you multiple entries as well. But mm. it's, it's not expensive, certainly compared to the London one. Uh, Jen on the move raises a good point, which is: Do our congestion charging zones or uh, you know, these sorts of zones do they risk being regressive because they can penalise um, you know the people who are less well off, you know, lower income earners? Obviously, two pounds for someone who's very low income is substantially is significant, and someone on a higher income bracket, not so much. Well, this is true, but the, the and, it, and it, it, it's such a knotty debate. This, but the argument would be. That by charging the two pounds, then people who, you know, delivery drivers, disabled people, they, I mean, disabled people probably get an exemption anyway, mm. but people who need to drive can drive and they don't, and there aren't so many people driving that the buses get held up. So, you know, if, if you're really poor, you can't afford a car anyway. So yeah, you are exactly, totally yeah. reliant on either buses or cycling or walking. So, the, so if the congestion charge has the effect of, reducing the congestion so the buses can run more reliably and the company can afford to run more buses for the same operating cost, then there's a benefit there to the people, to, to poorer people. Absolutely. So 
it, it, it's it, it's you can always cite somebody who needs to use a car use, use a car who is poor who will be disadvantaged and politicians are always saying oh well, we'll give you an exemption but actually you, you, you can't give exemptions you know, it, it, there isn't going to be a perfect system we kind of have to get to a point where nobody needs a car because the public and active transport alternatives are are just fantastic, and if any anybody who is needs a car because of disability um, is exempted, and you know, and, and they don't experience any congestion, and you know, so it's that's the kind of nirvana that we're trying to get. Yeah, to. yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a point I raise actually a lot. Is, is people talk is actually the statistics broadly in car ownership show that London has some very good statistics on car ownership, and car ownership is very much actually the domain of middle and higher income bracket people, actually. Yeah. So, yes, as you say, there are obviously there are people who are less well off. And, and actually, regionally, that changes because London does have a viable PT and active kind of active travel uh, alternative set of alternatives. Out, you know, regionally, it's a bit different, but we should be aiming for the place where people are able to rely on public transport. And, yeah. And, and, um, yeah. And I, th I think actually in, in the whole of England, I can't remember the exact figure now, but it's about 50% of the people in the lowest quintile, so in other words, the lowest, the poorest 20% of the population, about 50% of them do not have access mm. to a car. Yeah, so it's so it's it's important to look at that, and, and that isn't, yeah, that's those sorts of statistics are really important to have to hand in those sorts of discussions, which happen fairly frequently. Right, we will press on because we're we're already nearly eight o'clock. I hope you don't mind. We might push a little bit late. Is that a problem for you, Eddie? You're right. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Um, so so London, so this is the probably the most well-known one in the UK, right? London congestion charging. Uh, the, 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 here's the central zone. I put an extra picture up actually. So we've got we've got the kind of the standard seaside picture, but also there's the picture you put up, which is of this. Uh, it's not a transit van, it's a Mercedes, uh, slightly shifty looking van with a CCTV <laughs> camera on top. Tell us about that. Yeah, and that's, uh, yeah, that's the mobile camera. Um, so London is actually quite unusual that the, the, the cameras that you pass by are quite discreet. You know, you, you, they're, they're, they're black and they're just on poles mounted at the side of the road. Uh, most most cities that have congestion jars, they have gantries, and we'll, have, we'll see a picture of one of those. But in order to catch people who are either just driving within the city um, centre itself, so local traffic, or who somehow managed to miss, or, don't, or the number plate reader doesn't catch them, these these vans will, will catch some of those. Mm. So it just means you you, you can't you can't evade it. Um, you know, it's it's a bit like the TV detector van. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, crikey. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. So, that, so that's the yeah, that's the London congestion charge. So, um, yeah, and I suppose the Ulez is different, right? It's, is, is it is the Ulez a natural step beyond the congestion charge, or is it actually a very different system laid on top of it? I, I, I don't necessarily know exactly the difference between the two. Um, they're, they're essentially the same sort of system. So, is, there's AMPR cameras to to monitor the vehicles passing through, but because Ulez is only um, it's only certain classes of vehicles that are um, required to pay. Um, it's much easier for them for, for them to enforce. Um, so it's. Uh, but, I mean, there, there's been a lot of debate, of, you know, for instance, in Birmingham and um, other cities about whether private cars should be included or not. So the congestion charge in London is is all vehicles, um, even the discount that um, there's a 90% discount for people who live within the zone, uh, but that's been suspended um, since the since the changes for COVID. Mm. Um, but uh, but ULEZ has, has a relatively small proportion of vehicles getting caught by that. But it, it's, it's essentially the same system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and then the next, so the next uh, image is we've we've moved beyond our shores um, into oh, where is this? Gothenburg. So this, this, this is this is Stockholm. This is so Stockholm. This, this, yeah. This, yeah. So so the the more typical form of of uh, urban road charging is to put up gantries and just put loads and loads of cameras on them, and the the, the idea is to have the cameras lined up with the lanes and that you get a, a high reliability when vehicles are traveling at high speed you know, they're not they're not going to be blocked obscured by a, a vehicle in front and so on I, I i don't know what the sort of hit rate is in london because having all the cameras mounted or on poles at the side of the road and the roads aren't so wide um they probably do miss some vehicles yeah so they so this so this is a cordon so it's so it's a cordon system right around the city um, this one isn't a cordon system, actually. This, this ah, okay. is really um, this is a, a type of toll system. Ah, right. So that there are gantries set up now. Although most of the gantries are set um, at the point where you, um, the most obvious ones are where you're leaving the main road to enter an urban road to go into the city. There are actually gantries set up. I'm, I'm fairly sure about this. There are gantries set up at various points within the city as well. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a funny one. It's such a normal thing when you're driving around Europe to to go through a toll road. Uh, and this is a, a slight segue, but it, so what you know, I mean, in Serbia, it's in family, and they're, they're the only motorway they have through Serbia. It's a toll road. You know, you, you queue up and pay your toll as you, as you go through, and it's such a strange. It's so strange that in the UK we don't that that never particularly. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. So so in Sweden, you you pay um, a certain amount. For at each gantry that you pass through, and it's capped at a daily amount of, of um, 105 Swedish kroners, which is about nine pounds fifteen. Okay, yeah, oh, that's a yeah. I mean, Sweden things the things do cost a little bit more, I suppose, per, relatively. Um, yeah, but then the the London one is fifteen pounds a day. Yeah, that's that's true. So, I, I'm I'm lucky in York in that I just you know we, we drive I can buy the heaviest, loudest, noisiest, most cl- claggy vehicle and just drive it straight through the city centre without any problem. So uh, <laughs> be glad to know I don't do that. Um, right, uh, the next image. Okay, so this is this this is interesting. So this, where, where is this then? Tell us. Tell us. This is your photograph, actually, by the look of it. From back it is. Yes. Yeah, so um, yeah, in 2018, I I, I visited um, Singapore and um, had a look at the um, what they call the electronic road pricing ERP network that they have there. And, and this is gantries that are dotted all around the city, and you pay a certain amount to pass under each one of them. So um, you, you accumulate um, a, a toll through the door through the day, and there's no daily cap either. And the, and the amount that, that each toll um, is set at varies by time of day, and um, uh, and and by the particular and by the road. So it varies between fifty um, half a Swedish do- uh, a Singaporean dollar and six, which is about twenty eight pence and three pounds thirty five. So that three by thirty-five is to pass one gantry at um, the, you know, the peak time on the on the busiest roads. Now they set the prices to maintain a traffic flow of twenty to thirty kilometres an hour on arterial roads and forty-five to sixty-five kilometres an hour on expressways, and they 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 redo the pricing periodically in order to get this sort of optimal um, road speed. Yeah. So this, so does this time then with the next image, uh, this one? Yeah. So this, so each of those blue rectangles is a gantry, and each ah, one of okay, them yeah. has its own pricing formula. 
and, and that will vary by time of day. And uh, so the, the, the really busy roads will be very expensive and the smaller roads will may, may, may be less, but uh, the ones right in the, the central business district will be, be, be the most expensive. So this counts, so this still actually counts, I suppose, is it a bit of a hybrid? Is it actually kind of a bit of a, a tolls and cordon sort of hybrid? Um, well, it's, it's, it, it's a toll. It's a, it's a very complex network of tolls. Um, so it's, okay. it's, not, it's not a cordon. Oh, really. okay. It's, so it is a pure it's, toll it's, system. It's just very yeah. it's a fiddly one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's essentially, I mean, it's, I mean, Singapore is more than just the, the city, but it is essentially covers the whole island. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, um, yeah, so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very dense toll, um, toll network. But interestingly, it's, very debatable about whether it by itself is is adequate to control congestion mm. um, in order to own a car you have to have what's called a certificate of entitlement and those are rational in fact as of last year i think um, the government stopped issuing them so there is a oh, finite God. number of certificates of entitlement out there in the mm. to be and you have to bid for one if you want to own a car and they they go up to twenty thousand pounds so you have to you have to pay twenty thousand pounds in order to have the right to then go and buy a car, and that's valid for um, ten years in the first place. And then once you get to ten years, you have a choice about whether you buy another one. Um, buy um, uh, and, and um, after seventeen years, you've got to get rid of the car completely. You, you're not allowed to drive. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Sold and that. It's got to be exported from the country, or it's got to be um, it's got to be scrapped. Ah, crikey. So um, there's a big export market actually, it's yeah. like New Zealand and Australia. Ah, right, okay. Crikey. So um and is that then augmented? Presumably that isn't necessarily hugely horrendous for uh, less well off people because there is an effective public transport transport system across Singapore, right? Yeah, I mean it is it is a stunning public transport um system. Um and actually they're now investing very heavily in um developing a cycle network. And when I was there there mm. were loads and loads of, of um hire bikes, you know, littered all over the place. Um, that, that wasn't a particularly successful experiment, but they're building the infrastructure to support cycling, which, which you know is, is interesting given it's a tropical country and that you know in the middle of summer it is um, hideously hot and probably not conducive at all to cycling. But the public transport network is superb. The bus services are superb. The, the underground network, in which they're still expanding, um, is superb and reasonably priced. So. Um, the, the percentage of trips made by public transport is very high. I, I think it's it's over 75 percent. So I think it's about 76 percent of, of trips are made on public transport. And that's absolutely incredible. Yeah, I've never been to Singapore, actually. I mean, I, occasionally I thought, should I go out for the F1? But um, yeah, it's a very long way away. And I think maybe maybe it's one for the for the long term. I think the only way I'll get there anytime soon is if I end up doing some work out there. But the trouble is they've they've finished lots of their public transport system they're kind of decades ahead of everywhere else anyway right so um we're already at 10 past eight let's have a look at road pricing and what that might look like in the uk well firstly i suppose the question is while this big orange slide is up is um so none of those systems were road pricing systems they were all tolls and cordons yeah so the so the true road pricing system um is going to be introduced in singapore as of possibly this year, I mean, that's the, it, it, may, it may slip now. And that is going to be um, GPS and cell phone tracked. So, you, so every car every car has to be fitted with a, with a thing that can um, talk to the, to the gantries to track you and, and make sure that you're paying your toll. Mm. 
Mm. And that's going to be replaced by a more sophisticated device that's going to be a GPS sensor and that is going to do a similar job, but it's going to be measuring the distance you travel and what time you travel. And it's going to calculate your charge and display, you know, like, like a taxi meter in your car, is going to show you precisely what your in, what, what charges you're incurring as you're incurring. Ah, okay, that's quite nice. Yeah, yeah. And so to what extent... So, yeah, that's similar to, to the insurance black boxes that are... Or not, not necessarily, but, but it's not a dissimilar technology to the insurance black boxes uh, no, in, it is. in place now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. So, 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 so that's so that's sort of the system. A very, I suppose we could have we could talk for hours about the various intricacies of that system and perhaps you know how it would be operated, who would operate it, if you'd have an, an a, a, you know, if the D, the DVLA would be, or you know, which body. Would be, you know, there's all sorts of discussion there, but actually, that's probably not that. You know, it, it would go around in circles basically. Whereas what I think is interesting, and you sent this data through, and I'm really glad you did because it's really interesting to look at it, is actually some numbers some actual numbers of what a, of what road pricing could materially look like in the UK. So there are two two slides with, with numbers on them that we have. Um, the first one is uh, is actually just, I presume, stats now that exist now that are for the way that we drive vehicles around now in the UK. Yeah, so the, the, these are the latest published stats on the number of registered vehicles. This, this is in Great Britain. Uh, um, it's GB, for, okay, not Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. for... for, for um, um, Odd statistical anomaly; they don't collect all the all the same stats for Northern Ireland as well. So these are these are to be fully comparable. They're all GB. So this is the number of vehicles licensed in each different category, and the the total logged distance that they're driven, and therefore you can you can calculate what the average driven per vehicle in each class is, and you can see how um, heavy goods vehicles do, you know big mileages because you know they're commercial vehicles they you know they don't sit around idle and um, so so yeah so we've got 39 million vehicles registered ish um covering 530 billion kilometers annually that's some that's some mileage right there um and yeah so the average distance driven is so for 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 cars and taxis around about thirteen thousand kilometers a year um yeah, yeah that makes it so it's about What's that? Eight thousand miles. That kind of figures around, doesn't it? Crikey, yeah. that's some mileage. So, the, so then the way this manifests itself is that then you can sort of do do your number scrunching, um, and then okay. So there are two columns here that are the interesting ones that you can talk about. So there's a factor column, and then the user cost. Okay, it's fairly self-evident what that one means, but those two columns are then what give us our revenues and and an average kind of annual user cost. So. Um, so yeah, the first two two columns. Explain those two then. The factor first. What, what, what does so, that mean? so the, the factor is, is is just a very crude attempt to um, attribute some um, some proportionality, if you like, to um, the cost. So um, clearly, a heavy goods vehicle um, causes much more damage and more pollution and so on than a than a car. So therefore, it, it should pay more per mile. Mm. Um, but actually, in, you know, we would actually want to see something much more sophisticated than this. But this is this is just to, to start us out. So goods vehicles actually, in this case, covers everything from uh, large vans to you know six axle HGVs. So 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 I just assumed that we've got a, a, an average factor of five in there, with, with the HGVs probably being a factor more like ten, and the medium sized goods vehicles being at the lower end. Um, and buses and coaches, I've kind of assumed that because buses provide a public service, we don't want to increase the marginal cost there. We don't want to 
add more cost to the fares. Mm. So buses would be free, but private coaches would pay. So I've just taken a a very low factor just to account for the private coaches. And motorcycles, well, you know, they they take a little bit of space, they cause some pollution, they cause noise. So, you know, let's let's, just assume that they have a factor of 0.2 relative to a private car. Now, the, the, the price figures, and I've, I've deliberately chosen a figure that gives me the right answer. So, which, is know, what gov- I, which is what would happen anyway, right? Government yeah. would balance these numbers to broadly bring them the income that they're looking for. So it's not an unrealistic exactly. thing for you to do. Exactly. So, so all I've aimed to do here is just to replace the income to the Treasury. So in other words, that fuel duty, the, the, the VAT and the, 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 the money that's, that we are paying now in one way or another through vehicle accident reducing so that how if those were to be replaced by a per mile, per kilometer fee, this is, the, 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 this is what the total sum needs to be. And that, so the six and a half pence per mile, per, so per, per kilometer for a car, um, and then using the, the other factors um, using the factors to arrive at the other figures and then multiplying by the distances currently driven by vehicles in each of those classes, that's how we get the 43.7 billion pounds per year. Mm. And, it, and this assumes, of course, that it wouldn't change behaviour. And we would actually hope that it would change behaviour, that it would reduce driving. So therefore, if Treasury was really needed to, you know, actually wanted to get light for light replacement of its tax revenue, the figures would almost certainly have to be higher in order yes. to kind yeah. of overshoot, and then there would be some. And then some manage that rebalancing. Yeah, yeah. So as, as, it, as it would hopefully drive some modal shift. Yeah, absolutely. That's exa- exactly. And, and, and not just modal shift, but actually people just not making journeys because they don't need to, or that they can figure out other ways of doing it, or um, more more efficient ways of, of ship trip chaining, or doing yeah, more online yeah. ordering, or whatever that sort of thing. Yeah. So all, all sorts of changes. So the, interesting, the sorry, go on. Yeah. So, so the, the the average cost is is what uh, the the annual cost for an average vehicle in each class class would pay. So the average person, uh, car owner, would find themselves paying eight hundred seventeen pounds a year. And that might sound a lot, but that's replacing all of the kind of invisible costs of paying fuel duty and VAT yeah, yeah. and and the and the VED. So. That's probably not, you know, for, it should, for the average person, that should actually be pretty much what they pay now. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are some interesting discussions going on in the chat, actually, that I think are worth raising. So there's some discussions of, of, of using ANPR. Um, I suppose that then becomes toll rather than kind of, yeah. It's, so I, I suppose yeah. the discussion, the more wide discussion is about um, people are worried about um, those who bypass GPS on the vehicle. Others are worried about having GPS trackers on the car. They feel uncomfortable about that. Um, there are some other discussions about um, could people, you know, yeah, people bypass tachometers now? Could they bypass GPS? Um, yeah, some interesting discussions about that. Uh, and why does it have to be? As someone else asked a very, in fact, if you see who specifically asked it, so it's an interesting question. Uh, Muser Zero asks, um, why would it need to be GPS based? Can it not just be mileage based? Um, yeah, so that's yeah. well. So, so I think in the first place. Um, to, to, to get political buy-in for this, it has to actually be a like-for-like replacement for what's there now. As soon as, some, you know, as soon as the papers can identify individuals who are going to end up paying two or three times what they pay now to drive, um, it will be a non-starter. It just, the, the, the road lobby is too strong. So I think in the first place, 
the most obvious thing to do actually is just a simple mileage based um, fee that is that is proportionate to some degree to the to the impact of the vehicle, so the weight of the vehicle and the, the yeah. emissions and all the rest of the vehicle. Um, so you, you you get a little bit of subtle, um, uh, something a bit more subtle than fuel duty. I mean, fuel duty is proportionate to the weight of the vehicle and to, to, to some you know, to, and to, to the mileage you do. We could be a little bit more subtle than that with road pricing, but essentially, yes, we could just simply do it that you report how how far you drive periodically. But say you know, say, say when you get your MOT, I suppose it could exactly, be yeah, exactly. yeah, pick up the mileage um, then. Um, and, and, and that could be done through the, you know, the garage could do that, you know, and this, and they, 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 they do it now. They, they log your mileage and it gets fed into DVLA. That, that data could be used to, mm. to, to, um, to charge people, you know, and, and, and maybe like with, um, self-assessment with tax, um, your, you, you would sort of pay in, a, in advance for the next year based on your previous consumption. So that, and then, and then it'd be balanced out at the end of the year. And that, that way you're, you're not just paying a massive lump sum at the end of the year. It's, it's spread out. Mm. So there, there, there are ways to do it. And, and, and then the privacy issue about once you start getting into um, having tracking, um, I, I think it's very important that the data doesn't go directly to government. I mean, mileage isn't very sensitive. You know, but, you know it's not personally sensitive piece of information. But as soon as you've got, I mean, more uh, sensitive than that, so you've got the time of day that they're traveling on what roads they're traveling and, and so on, you you don't want that data going into a big government database. So the most, to my mind, the most obvious um, intermediaries for this are insurers. You have a relationship with an insurer already. It's in your, it's in both parties' interests to have that data because they can use it to give you a fairer uh, assessment of your insurance premium. And um, and it, particularly if you're a young driver, for instance. Um, you know, you, 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 you have a choice now of you, you pay you know, an eye-washing amount for insurance or you have a black box yeah. installed that monitors your driving performance. And, uh, you know, as long as you drive sensibly, then your premium is going to be affordable. So the same kind of incentive exists for, for, for this. There's, there's a, yeah, some people pointing out that they reckon that the MOT, that doing it at MOT is one way to resolve privacy issues and, and, and also fitting to all vehicles as well. So there's a potential benefit on that side. But... So yeah. do you see there's still a benefit? Yeah, so there is still there are still benefits of it going to to GPS tracking rather than mileage. At a well, the, the advantage of GPS tracking is that then you can vary the charge by the road that you're travelling on, the time of day yes. that you're travelling, and 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 this this is to this is really important to address one of the equity issues because at the moment if you live in a rural area, you of necessity have to drive further. Yeah. Than if you live in a in a city, so you kind of you know you, you just you just don't have the alternative options. So if you just charge a flat rate per mile, then the people who are causing you know unnecessary congestion by using their car to drive in from a, the inner suburb to the city centre, pay the same per mile and actually let much less annually than somebody who lives in a in a, a remote rural area. And needs to drive every day to get there, get their kids to school and uh, go to work and so on. So you can have a much lower rate where the impact is lower and the need is higher. And 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 you can only do that if you know where the car is on the road and what time of day. Mm. Yeah. So 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 the kind of the, the key conclusions of the interesting columns of this. Obviously, the the two the big number is the, is the revenue number there. But I suppose you've 
that depends depends on the user cost, and so you can flex that a bit to change that number. But what's it? Yeah, what is interesting is looking at that that pounds per year. So for all of us who own uh, a car, um, about eight hundred quid a year in this example isn't actually yeah. If you if if that was coming off fuel duty, uh, and and VED was absorbed by that, that isn't necessarily a a, a bank breaker. You know, it sounds seems like a lot of money on the face of it, but actually, if you consider that there's a good chunk of our fuel price that is um, accounted for in revenue in tax revenue, yeah, it's not um, it's not crippling. Um, no, I mean, it should be it should be revenue neutral because essentially the what we pay now through fuel duty and all those other things would be instead be paid this way. Yeah. So yeah. it would just it would for, for certainly for the for the average person with an average car, they should be there, there, there should be no difference to how much they pay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I like uh, the other thing about the GPS trackers is that with sufficient uh, uh, with sufficient anonymizing uh, and sort of uh, scabbling of the data, that becomes an incredibly powerful and useful data set for the DFT to maybe get its act together and start thinking about transport strategy and where absolutely. they can be matching or, or annulling road usage. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the knowledge we have about the uh, the road network is is very poor. I mean, there yeah. are counters, automated counters at various points on the on the, the motorways and the dual carriageways and some of the some of the big A roads. And local authorities have some counters, but mostly they do annual manual counts at very at a few points. But the data is 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 hopeless. It's is out is out of date. It's very it's it's variable because it's contingent on all sorts of, of, of um, things, and, and actually it's not very reliable. So as you say, if, if DFT had this feed of anonymized data, aggregated data, yeah. real time, um, it, it would completely transform our understanding and our ability to model interventions in the road network and, and, and potentials for mode shift and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, for me, as, a, as someone who's looking at, you know, behind the scenes, I'm, I'm trying to look at a data-driven way of developing what our, how, our tra- how our rail network specifically needs to look over the next 30 years. Um, it's very difficult to get hold of useful mass data without paying Google, you know, so and so many billion quid for um, for GPS, you know, for mobile phone traces, which you can yeah. do, but not as an individual, and so it's not very open. Whereas if it was, if that GPS data was sufficiently anonymized and aggregated as open data, it'd be incredibly powerful. And I, there's, you know, there's no, I see no reason for that not to be open data. You know. For the current government, they could say, "Well, it's great because it means that you know there's a commercial incentive there. There's some data that bus company, the private bus companies, can use to improve their service." Then me, with my slightly more socialist hat on, goes, "Yeah, but it allows Network Rail and the system operator to understand where they can, you know, build a new double track railway usefully, or you know, mm-hmm. these sorts of things." So it's, that's just a, an incredibly valuable data set. So that's part of the reason why I get excited at that being the way the way to go with it, rather than just looking at mileage. Um, right, it's good grief, it's 2023. I'm so sorry, Ed. So the two numbers that are interesting is, um, is so current tax revenue being 23.8 billion, and then this road pricing revenue model that you've, you've taken pretty much matches it. So it didn't take you a huge yeah. amount of effort to have a reasonably sensibly balanced, and a couple of people have pointed out that private cars and taxis should be priced differently because taxis enable potentially enable a more efficient use of vehicles. Yeah, I suppose that that's true. But I, I suppose that's just because of the simplicity of your sums in this example. Um, 
Well, no, it no, is because they're, they're not broken out, but yeah. actually taxis are, are, are less efficient than, than, than most private cars. The occupancy rate of a private car is, is, is typically around 1.2. Um, and taxis, um, I, I'm not sure what the occupancy rate is, but you can't, you obviously you can't count the driver. Um, Interesting. They're, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, 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 so, um, and, and there's a loss of dead mileage with taxis. So taxis are, you know, they're, they're traveling to the next pickup from the last drop-off. So that so taxes are really not an efficient. Ah, way. that's very interesting. Okay, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, if, if 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 we if we had shared taxes and we have sort of kind of demand responsive um, networks where you can call a vehicle and it will automatically plan a route that that, that efficiently picks people up and drops people off um, with a, with a appropriate sized vehicle, then yes, that that becomes efficient. But we we, we don't have that, despite what Uber and Lyft said. Um, that that hasn't been the big growth model in their, their business. Their, their bread and butter is people just booking an Uber and a Lyft mm. or a traditional A to B by themselves, by yourself. Ah, interesting, okay. Um, Detour points out that actually the mobile phone data isn't perfect, um, having used no. it, and, and, and actually when you get to busy areas, it's a bit of a mess. Uh, and lots of complexities. Yeah, so it's, so that, again, that just builds the idea that this GPS data, okay, GPS data is also not perfect, but um, I dare say it's easier to, it's probably easier to aggregate and and um, and perhaps easier to tidy up, I don't know. But anyway, that's that's um, that's another discussion perhaps, but I like big data, you see, and I like it, I like big open data as well. And so if that was, if it could be an open data set, that would be unbelievably powerful. Yeah, well, you, you want data which has a, has a, a relatively small noise factor and the problem with um, all, all the data we have is there is loads and loads of noise and, and variability in it. You know, it can be extraneous variability in it that we're not able to filter out. And, and mobile phone data sounds fantastic when you think of it in the abstract, but actually when you look at the, the data itself, it is, it is incredibly noisy. Um, and and you, 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 have, you obviously have no, no idea what mode of transport the person is on when they're moving. Um, they could they could be driving at walking pace, um, or they could be you know um, on, on a bus. You know, you've no idea. Yeah. So um, let's go side by side. Ed, that's been brilliant. We've had there's been some really good chat uh, going on. Actually, I'm, I'm pleased to say uh, all sorts of, of detailed conversations going on on all sorts of subjects, which is what I love about Rail Natter. Um, or in this case, road natter, but we won't tell anyone. Um, yeah, that's been brilliant. That's been honestly really, really interesting and, and, and a lot of food for thought for a lot of people. Some really interesting stuff going on there. Um, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. There's, uh, well, yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah, it's good. So it only remains to um, to go through me, me, me end bits as oft I do. So where are we? Uh, Heel uh, rarely can watch these live because he works. He's in the Netherlands and he's, he's, he's our the chap who does our um, podcast conversion. So hopefully we've described what's on screen in a sufficient way that people who listen to this audio only, uh, this makes some broad sense. Um, we have some, we have some um, blind viewers actually who do go off the audio only. So hopefully I've done a reasonable job of that. Um, as ever, you can pick themes by going in and support me on Patreon um, and or throwing things at me via PayPal as well. But Patreon is probably the best way. You are my producers. There are 64 of you now, I think. You are my producers. Um, and so I have to listen to you when you shout at me. Uh, whereas the people who shout at me on Twitter, I don't necessarily have to listen to them. Um, yeah, so thanks to all them. Um, next week's Rail Matter is going to be, uh, finally, we're going to get round to the engineer's guide to being a good crayonista. So this is, this is essentially, I see a lot of people drawing lines in paint on Google Earth screenshots, um, but I'm going to tell you how to do that, but better. 
essentially, um, as, as, as a permanent way engineer, this is sort of a bit of my job, so a bit of an insight there. So we'll get Google Earth up and we'll start drawing some railway lines and that should be interesting. Um, what else, what's, what's next? Ah, yes, so this is exciting. I did warn Ed about this, he knew this was gonna happen. Um, so the, I did tease that there was gonna be some news about the, the, the Avanti West Coast Pride train. Well, that news is that the name of the train, okay, there's a competition going on for people to choose the name of the train. And um, Charlie, as in Charlotte Monroe, has thought of an absolutely exquisite name uh, for this and has been speaking to people about it. And, and, and lots of us all agree that this is exactly what the name of the train should be. And it has an associated hashtag, which is, it's the progress train. The train should be called <laughs> progress. Um, so the, the, the updated pride flag that includes um, the, the trans colors and the colors of people of color. Um, so the extra bit, that's now called, the, it's the progress um, update to the pride flag, it's called progress. And this train should be called progress and it just feels like it represents all a huge amount, the new livery and, and lots of other things that Avanti West Coast are doing. Um, so what everyone has to do is go to um, avantiwestcoast.co.uk slash pride and go in there and choose progress as the name of the train. Uh, I'm going to do a video about this tomorrow and we're going to bang the drum and Charlie's already done loads of stuff I'm sure about this. There's a video has gone up. It's very exciting. But everyone who's a Patreon supporter and indeed everyone watching this rail matter, please go and vote for Progress to be the name of this train. Um, that's exciting. It's a rail matter exclusive, I think. Um, yes. <laughs> so name it Progress. Um, yeah. Uh, and I will just bring us back to Ed so we can say a, a final goodbye. Ed, that's been brilliant. Um, I've enjoyed it. Sure, sorry, it's, gone. it's an hour and a half. Oh, crikey. <laughs> so sorry. I'll let you have your evening back. Everyone, you've been brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us. I only really managed to say cheerio. Cheerio. Cheers. Yeah.